It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley on the train hurtling back towards London after a lovely uh, night and day in Cambridge. Did a stand-up show in Cambridge uh, last night and then did the radio show from Cambridge today. So coming up on the podcast today, the big thing today is a brilliant interview with David Runciman, political podcast enthusiast, or probably know him from the Talking Politics podcast, which ended a few weeks ago. He's been doing it since uh, 2015, just after the Russian annexation of Crimea. He stopped doing it just as Russia invaded Ukraine. Was Putin just a fan of the podcast? And that one kept him distracted. I asked him that, amongst other slightly more sensible questions, including why does Cambridge not produce prime ministers anymore? It just seems to be Oxford. So that's coming up in just a moment on the podcast. Before that, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. And I was joined live at the Well Cafe at the Zoology Museum in Cambridge by Dorothy Byrne, former head of news at Channel 4. She's now president of the Murray Edwards College. And by Abigail Rabbit, editor of Cambridgeshire Life. It's all right, this, isn't it? It's quite nice, Cambridge. Yeah, well, I'm a fan. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dorothy, explain. I'm, I'm interested how you go from Channel 4 News to running a Cambridge college. It's very strange, isn't <laughs> it? Uh, they approached me, and um, at first I thought, um, gosh, why would I want to run a women's college? And I went to a convent. Isn't one all-female institution <laughs> enough for one woman's life? But I do think that here at Cambridge, they really mean that they want to widen participation, as they call it, and bring in more people from less advantaged groups and from underrepresented ethnic minorities. They've made huge strides and are actually better than quite a number of other universities now. And that's the key reason that I came. That, and also because I think there is still a role for women's institutions. This idea that women have, you know, all our problems have been solved, so we don't need anything special of our own, is just absolute nonsense. I, I think, as we've seen from some of the BAFTA nominations recently, yeah. um, I think all the directors nominated were men. So I think we've got a long way to go ahead for women, and I'd like to be part of it. And Cambridge is amazing, and... In my college, nobody is allowed to eat until I get there. <laughs> and I think that that is very good and means that you're always sure there's food, which in <laughs> your daily life, um, you can't always be sure of, can you? Um, who's easier to control, the students or Cathy Newman? Oh, I wouldn't attempt to control anybody. <laughs> <laughs> that is, you're on a hiding to nowhere. You have to use what is called influencing, what are yeah. called influencing skills yes. nowadays. You're not allowed to boss people about anymore. 
Abigail, what about you? Are you are you Cambridge born in Preds or are you a, a recent convert? No, I am Cambridge my whole life and I love it here and I just think it's gorgeous and yeah, I love it. It is lovely. I mean, even on a day today, it was a little bit grey. It was still lovely coming in, uh, coming into work on a punt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm jealous <laughs> of that. That's a really yeah. Once Google Maps did actually do this thing where you could convert how long it would take you to get to various places around Cambridge via punt. Seems to be quite a quite a handy. Yeah, useful. Although I, I, traffic seems to be an issue. Like this morning at nine o'clock, there was no one else. I know if I'd come on like a Saturday afternoon in the summer. Manic. Completely mad. Well, I have to say that previously my commute was on the Northern Line <laughs> in London, known as the Misery Line. Yeah. yeah. And now I walk through the beautiful gardens of the college into the Grade 2 listed building, past the gorgeous art on the wall, and have a cup of tea. Lovely. Bliss. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Where's the Cambridge Live office? We don't actually have offices. We work from home. Is that, and is that a pandemic thing? Yeah, yeah. it is. So, um, yeah, we all seem to make it work and we've got a lot of uh, Zoom calls going on and all of that kind of thing. Does that mean actually weirdly that the reporters are out and about more? Yeah. Just they, because they just want to get out of the house? Yeah, exactly that. <laughs> they are uh, out talking to people, doing that kind of door knocking and, you know, going and having their interviews and things, which is, is good fun. Because you can just write it from anywhere now, so it doesn't, you don't need to be tethered to the desk. Exactly. So I think, yeah, working from home, it's, it's done wonders for our time management, actually getting back out into the community. Yeah. So, yeah, a, a strong positive from the pandemic, I'd say. Dorothy, let's pick up on what you were saying about, talking about why not everything is sorted for women. Um, there's a story this week uh, that the BBC, Tesco and Royal Mail are among 600 employers who've signed a pledge to make workplaces menopause friendly. This seems like a good idea. Absolutely vital. I think um, most people, until they get to the age of the menopause, which can start, the symptoms can start when you're 42, don't realise how badly it can affect women. Government statistics show that a quarter of women have considered giving up work because of the menopause. It's a really major issue. I think GPs are, I'm afraid to say, often very ignorant about how HRT can help you. I myself went on HRT after the menopause. I didn't even know that was possible. Prior to that, I was sleeping one to two hours um, a night, often falling asleep at work. This, Some, this is when you were at Channel 4? Yes, yeah. uh, a couple of times in front of my boss. Once she was making a speech, it was a very good speech. I was just so exhausted, I fell fast asleep. And I honestly think that I could not be um, the president of a college if I hadn't gone on to HRT. My energy levels are just so, so much better. And there is just enormous ignorance um, among doctors, among women of all ages, and also among men. Men really value having a menopause policy as well because they say, oh, gosh, that's helped me to understand the problems that my wife is going through. And you need to tell younger women about the menopause before they're affected by it. You know, I think you can't start too early. I believe you should teach about the menopause at school because it's a key part of life that half of all the pupils will go through. It just becomes a normal normal thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we need to we need to start talking about it earlier on and, and it needs to be part of the wider discussion. But I think just around women's health in general um, and everyone needs to kind of be more just informed. You know, a lot of my friends, their mums are sort of going through the menopause now and, you know, we're having those discussions and the symptoms and things. And the perimenopause, you know, we never... Until they were going through it, never heard of it. Yeah. And then you sort of learn things like one of my... Um, friend's mum was telling me about how she just can't stand oranges now and it was just like this we were just sort of sat around totally baffled yeah but actually this is a this is a huge thing that we're all destined to go through and we do we need to have better discussions about it and we need to get better at not being awkward about it yeah. too there's an interesting sort of cultural shift it seems is as well Dorothy of like big companies like this you know they don't I mean, it's obviously nice if they do nice things, but there's also a, probably a, maybe a commercial advantage, keeping keeping experienced people in work, retaining staff because they feel like they're taking an interest in them as human beings and not just people churning stuff out. Yeah, you go to all that trouble of training women up and they become very experienced and they learn to be good managers and then they just, they can't take it. Because the menopause often occurs at the same time as their own parents are deteriorating in health and their children are going through the ghastly and ludicrous British school exam system. <laughs> and it's You're just, right, that, it's that exact, it's it's just sort of too much storm, for them. Yeah, yeah. And they give up. And I ended up, before I left uh, Channel 4, as the oldest woman commissioning um working for a broadcaster in programming the the other i mean i i, I, I you know i just suddenly noticed one day everybody else had gone yeah. and i think that that was actually because even although i was suffering i was a single parent so i had to keep working and so you get, but i suppose also as well if if more it it becomes a sort of virtuous circle if more of those women stay that changes the culture Rather than because you know, if part of the problem, it's all men at the top of the organisation. Apparently, it doesn't occur to us men because we're and, hopeless. And it, um, you know, but if you have more women there, it just becomes a normal part of the conversation. Yeah, and it shows younger women yeah. that there are r- older role models yeah. there, um, you know, who can carry on working. I'm about to be seventy. And, you know, very soon, 70 is actually going to be the retirement age. But I actually don't feel like retiring. You know, um, I think we can, we, we need to go on and on yeah. because young people can't afford to look <laughs> after so many old people. So it's in the government's interest to keep us at it. <laughs> um, I need to point out that you, you uh, telling us your age has got nothing to do with me saying we need to move on and talk about dinosaurs. Um, uh, <laughs> Abigail, there was a story. Uh, Cambridge scientists have discovered it, um, the largest predatory dinosaur. Well, they've actually discovered the secret behind it. Is okay. that it had dense bones, which I think is just fascinating. You know, when I was growing up, I, I desperately wanted to be a paleontologist. Right. That was I was just all my Ross Geller fantasies were there. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, no, we, we came about this story yesterday, and I just thought absolutely fascinating. We've got all these wonderful minds here, right on our doorstep, discovering just like secrets of dinosaurs and just incredible stuff. And you know, a lot of people, I think always think of dinosaurs I think about the T-Rex and there's actually a lot more going on there and I think that's pretty cool so this is the Spinosaurus yes 18, 18 metres long heavier than an elephant is, it, is that because of the very dense bones uh, well I would assume so I'm not going to sit here and pretend to be a dinosaur expert but I would yeah I would assume so that's the reason they think it may, it may have uh, it, it could have been able to swim others think it might have waded into the water like a heron 
I can't even imagine what I'm struggling to picture what this looks like. It's it's quite uh, quite a sight. I mean, I mean, next thing is it actually the Loch Ness monster? Yeah, that's a very good point. Oh, there he is. There's a picture. Yeah, you don't want you want to come up against that. No, not on a dark night, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, the these these notebooks. These this is a great story. These yeah, notebooks, amazing. isn't it? Um, does this sort of thing happen a lot in Kate? I mean, I was struck when Ava was doing the very... And lots of people have messaged about how fun Ava was on the... On the I mean, this, there's history in every single bit. She's like, oh, there's that there, and that pub there is where Pink Floyd played. And this yeah. is the thing where Byron had his bear and all that. There is history everywhere. Uh, in every footstep. And we, oh. we really like to lean into that on Cambridge Live as well. But, no, things like this don't happen very often. I mean, Darwin's notebook showing up with a note that says Happy Easter with, a, with that kiss on the end of it as well. <laughs> specifically, just really cracks me up. Um, but, no, I thought... When that came through yesterday morning, we were all in our group chat like, what? This is unreal. It's Absolutely such a unheard good story. of. Yeah, it's so a, good. Also, particularly because I heard, and we're going to speak to them later on, but I heard someone from the library saying that whoever it was had managed to not be caught on CCTV. They'd managed to get into the library and out again. So they genuinely don't know who's who's behind it. A ninja. Yeah, a ninja. Um, <laughs> uh, Dorothy, I need to ask you as well about your old, your old world of Channel 4 News. Um, what is your take on 24 hours after the Dean Doris announces she wants to sell off Channel 4 News, uh, Channel 4 altogether? Are you any clear as to why? I think she is throwing a bit of red meat to please Boris Johnson, uh, who needs to please some of his right-wing supporters who are very unhappy with him at the moment, not least about Partygate. It doesn't make sense. She's saying... A key reason she's doing it is to support independent production companies. Well, already Channel 4 doesn't make any of its own programs. All its programs are made by independent production companies, which also keep the rights in the programs, formats, and therefore can sell them around the world, making billions for us. So how does it make sense to then sell Channel 4 to what will be a great big commercial organisation, which inevitably, to maximise profits, will want to make as many as possible of the programmes itself, and of course, will also want, rightly, to make a profit. Whereas at the moment, Channel 4 doesn't make a profit, and all the money from its programme making is siphoned through independent production companies around the country, about two-thirds of content of Channel 4 is made outside London. And do you, is there any... The criticism from some Tory MPs is that Channel 4 News is a bit lefty. The old joke about... Although I think... I, I remembered it's a John Prescott joke, but it might be wrong. Put on a silly time, read out The Guardian. Do you accept there's any case at all for Channel 4 News being more to the left than some other broadcasters? I think Channel 4 News has a different agenda and it's less establishment than the BBC. But those criticisms from some on the right are don't stand up to scrutiny when you look at the complaints they make to the regulator. The regulator rejects them. Even when we substituted, when they wouldn't turn up, Boris Johnson for a giant ice cube, that is just no chairing, which is a standard journalistic technique. We just did it in a wittier way. And funnily enough, Boris Johnson likes to be the man who tells the jokes. He can't like being the butt of a joke. Yes, as I discovered yesterday when I made some jokes about the Dean Dois and um, certain Conservatives didn't like that either. Uh, but there we are. That's free speech for you. <laughs> <laughs>
Bob Dorothy Bowen, president of Murray Edwards College in Cambridge, and Abigail Rabbit from Cambridgeshire Live. Coming up is my chat with David Wonsman. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. David Runsman. He teaches politics here at the university and just until a couple of weeks ago was the host of the massively popular political podcast Talking Politics. It ended its six-year run last month. So I caught up with him and asked if we chatted about but basically everything that's happened uh, in the last six years. From gen- so many general elections, Corbyn, Trump, Brexit... My particularly loves Dominic Cummings' blog. I'm also fascinated as to why uh, no one who came to Cambridge has become Prime Minister in about 100 years. But seeing as the podcast started back in 2015, not long after the uh, Russian annexation of Crimea, and it ended just before Russia invaded Ukraine, I started by asking whether the two were linked. I can't say we started because of the <laughs> annexation of Crimea. We started because Jeremy Corbyn became yes. leader of the Labour Party and we thought something's going on and then Corbyn, Brexit, Trump became our thing. Although we did actually have a few conversations about Russia and Crimea and then we decided to stop at Christmas. And again, I wouldn't want to say that at Christmas we knew that the week we decided to stop, Putin would be invading. Do you, do you think that maybe Putin was a listener and now he's got time on his hands and this is, this is uh, where we've ended uh, up? No. <laughs> <laughs> so we did one a month before we stopped with the defence editor of The Economist and he said Putin's going to invade on, I think he said the 24th of February, something like yeah. that. And he was right to within two days. And we thought, ooh. But I have to say, having not done it for the last six weeks, it's a relief because I'm no better informed than anyone else. I'm as stressed as anyone else. And unlike some of the stuff we talked about in the past, there's a Corbyn, Brexit, Trump, it feels a little scarier. I wondered whether, looking back, you had, I mean, the 2015 majority, Tory majority was, you know, not expected. Then you had Corbyn, Trump, Brexit. Tories lose the majority. Tories get the majority back. Pandemic. All felt very big at the time. And yet, in some way, pale into insignificance. I mean, less so the pandemic. But certainly like, oh, you won't believe what Jeremy Corbyn said now. Felt very important at the time, but then suddenly maybe it doesn't. But then actually maybe that's the luxury of having peace and stability that you can get worried about what the leader of the opposition Yeah, so it does feel like there was a period in politics that looking back might well be bracketed by the annexation of Crimea on one side, the invasion of Ukraine on the other. And in between all of this crazy stuff happening, these elections, one after another, these elections where the 10% probability came out on top and the 90% certainty failed. The thing that I'm regretting not having a chance to talk about is the French presidential election yeah. because three weeks ago I said it's a foregone conclusion and Macron will probably still win, but it's just starting to have a little bit of that vibe about it that some of these other ones did. But of all of those, the one that still doesn't seem inconsequential to me is Trump. So yeah. as we went through all of those, I'm not saying Brexit was inconsequential, it was very important, but some of the hysteria around it seemed a bit overblown. But I never got over the election of Donald Trump just as a, as a sort of fact. I wonder as well whether, because we were so consumed by domestic politics and the Malt House Compromise and the Swire Amendment and all that stuff. And the Ben Act. The Ben Act. Oh, the Ben Act. Uh, and Change UK and all of that. And because it, the stakes felt very high, and actually they did, it's about you know where the country was and trading partners and all that. Do you think part of the reason why we've been so brought up short by what's happening in Ukraine as a result of Russia is because we've been quite insular actually for the last five or six years? Yeah, I think peak insularity was that autumn, the sort of nightmare autumn prorogation, that period, and also actually that earlier spring as well. So 
through 2019, before the election sort of yeah. moved things on, where it was frozen. It was a kind of frozen politics and a hysterical politics. And even at the time, it felt like people were screaming without anything moving. Since 2019, it felt a little bit less um, insular. Once Brexit happened, then people had to ask what it meant. And you know, people started to think about Northern Ireland Protocol as a thing that might actually have consequences rather than just something that people could scream about. But I, w- I mean, I'm no different from anyone else. When Putin massed his troops on the edge of Ukraine, I kind of thought, yeah, you know, it's sort of it's sort of thing that people like him do. And now here we are, it feels like a completely different world. That earlier stuff looks very, very long ago. Do you think that it's a sort of failure of clever people, whether that's politicians, political professors, journalists, I'm not saying the army clever journalists, but other clever journalists, that we've always thought that everything was going to be all right in the end. And actually, in the end, with Brexit, you know, we got them in the end, the election, and then we left and all. And that actually what we might be seeing, partly with the pandemics, you know, massively challenged that. And actually the same might be true with what's happening in Ukraine, that actually in history sometimes things don't all turn out all right in the end. Yeah, I mean, it was a theme of our podcast, actually, that some of the things that people thought were the great disasters probably weren't. So even mm. though Trump was, Trump's presidency is a hard event to wrap your head around, mm. I didn't think that January the 6th was, you know, the end of the world. I didn't think it was a coup. I always thought he would leave office. You know, the nightmare scenario that America was on the brink of another civil war seemed incredibly remote. And one of the themes that we had on the podcast, something I pushed over and over, was the people who said we're kind of going back to the 1930s. I'll about that, yeah. I didn't think we were, but we are now, in the sense that we've got a 1930s war, but it's not where, where we thought it would be. So that sort of idea that Washington was going to have fascism march, marching through the streets, that Europe, the democracies were going to fall like dominoes, I, I never believed that. But the idea that a land war would happen on the European continent, which wasn't some futuristic cyber war, it's an unbelievably grim, possibly genocidal war in which it's being decided by brute force, tr- tanks running out of fuel, indiscriminate bombing of civilians. That is the 1930s, but it's not where people... You know, people thought you know, fascism was coming back in Washington. It's not. Almost because people were so obsessed with... You know, I'd include myself in this. You won't believe what Donald Trump's tweeted yeah, now. Exactly. Because it's in English rather than you won't believe what Putin's done now, because there's a different, you know, they don't speak our language, it seems a long way away, you know, it's not our fight to be part of. Yeah, and Putin was playing a long game, yeah. we know that, and Trump was playing a 20-minute yeah. game. I mean, that's how his <laughs> politics worked. Yeah. And he, was, he wasn't just tweeting, he was tweeting at 3am. And it was, you know, a lot of it was funny. Yeah. Putin's not particularly funny. I no. think Trump is, you know, was and is pretty funny, still quite funny, advertently as well as inadvertently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so easy to get wrapped up in it. And then what we hear is the sort of rhetorical similarities. I remember watching this film that the New York Times made where they just had footage of Mussolini and footage of Trump. And they were saying, this is the warning from history because he sticks his chin out in the same way. And, you know, <laughs> but it's just his chin. Yeah. Uh, that's not how politics is decided. We, we've learned the hard truths in the last six weeks. It's not about how they stick their chin out. And so when you look back on, on six years of doing the podcast, and you know, you're a politics professor, so you're thinking about this stuff all the time and writing about it and talking about it. But... Having that sort of body of work, looking back on it, it sounds like, I mean, certainly on the 1930s thing, you've changed your mind. Have you changed your mind about other things? Yeah, so on the 1930s thing, I sort of part one to say I was right in the sense that where people thought it was coming, I don't think, you know, it's not like since what happened in Ukraine, the Western democracies have fallen apart. If anything, they look more together than they have for a while. These things come in the places where you don't expect. And we should remember that while we're in the 21st century, other parts of the world are playing out a politics that's much more familiar from history. So, you know, that one I'm sort of 
I'm torn on. We called almost every election wrong. I mean, that has, <laughs> that has to be said. Join, join the club. We started in 2015. Yeah. yeah the, and, and in a way, the two that were the most surprising were 2015 and 2017. I remember you'll be the same. The last six years are punctuated by 3 a.m. moments. Yeah. Uh, or exit poll moments yeah. where everything changes in sort of you know, 20 seconds. Yeah. And those two exit polls, the one where Cameron got his majority and then the one where May yeah. lost hers. And even actually, though, it was much more expected when Johnson got his yeah there's that sort of feeling that oh my god it's all shifted and then 48 hours 72 hours later politics is is familiar and we were talking about this a bit earlier you know the war for a week seemed like it had really shifted the tone of british politics and now it's still the same people in charge here they're still capable of of making the same mistakes as they were before but you know the, the same people responsible for pandemic mistakes policy mistakes gaffes party gate are still capable of making the same potentially the same mistakes when it comes to approaching a war. Yeah. And after those elections, after 2015, where Miliband and Clegg and Farage all quit, didn't they? Yeah. Within sort of, and you think, wow, it's, it was a, whole, it was incredible. it's a whole new world. Well, <laughs> <laughs> But the thing, if you'd said to me in 2015, I'd say the thing that I would be most surprised by, if you took that whole group, the coalition group, Cameron and Osborne and, and Clegg and all the politicians of that era, you said, fast forward to 2022, and one of them will have like global power. And it's going to be Nick Clegg. And it's going to be because he's part running Facebook. <laughs> exactly. It's amazing, that, I just thought, wow, something's. Yeah, and you've got David Cameron sitting at home, still like, on his own, saying, yeah, Nick, two coffees, a coffee. Yeah. Oh, Oh, he's not there because Nick Clegg's in California running Facebook. All the accounts of the coalition, the contempt with which George Osborne treated Nick Clegg. But I imagine you take his call today. Yeah, but but George George Osborne's, you know, he had a brief spell editing a newspaper. Now he's running a museum. It's not quite the same as running... Not running the world. Not running, yeah. President of Global Affairs. An extraordinary thing. David, sitting here in Cambridge, one thing I wanted to ask you about is everyone has this idea that everyone in politics all went to Oxbridge. All the prime ministers went to Oxbridge. They all went to Eton, they all went to Oxbridge. Well, if you look at the figures, <laughs> we haven't had a Cambridge Prime Minister for about 100 years. We've had a lot of Oxford ones. We've had a lot of Oxford ones in that time. Overall, we've had twice as many, I think of the 55, 28, something like that, from Oxford. About half of that have been to Cambridge. Why is Cambridge so bad at producing Prime Ministers? Well, although, as we were talking earlier, Nick Clegg, <laughs> the man who rules the world. <laughs> well, yeah, the that line when Johnson was asked, does he want to be Prime Minister? His sister said, no, he's more ambitious than that. Yes, exactly. Clegg's the only one who's followed through on that. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. So I used to, I've actually stopped because it was a bit depressing. So I teach the Introduction to Politics course to about 200 students. Uh, and I used to, at the start of the year, say, how many of you want to go into politics? And I say, by politics, I don't mean working for Amnesty International, yeah. writing snarky columns about it in The Guardian. Yeah. I mean, standing for election with all the miserable stuff that entails. And maybe seven or eight will put their hand up out of 200. Now, I haven't done it in Oxford because I haven't taught in Oxford, yeah. but I'm pretty sure if you take the PPE yeah. cohort, it's more than seven and eight. So it's partly a selection effect. The ultra-ambitious who think that this yeah. is a thing There's you need to There's a conveyor belt it. over there. Yeah. There isn't a conveyor yeah, belt yeah. over here. The other possibility, I don't know if it's true, but one or two people have said this, is that how we teach it here is we tend to teach politics with sort of history and philosophy and sociology, whereas the thing about PPE is the E is economic. And it probably helps. I mean, genuinely, yeah, yeah. probably. I mean, they didn't all do PPE, 
but the ones who did it's a particular kind of training and probably it is the case that some economics training is a help and sociology is less of a help <laughs> <laughs> PP of course being politics lost in, in philosophy economics. I don't know how much the for philosophy the, for the 99.9% yeah, of people I, who didn't I go apologize to no it's fine as somebody didn't go to university it's good that I've, uh, I've picked up some of these bits it's interesting I suppose isn't it that even people coming to Cambridge who are interested in small p politics you they're both interested in it and want to do something it's slightly depressing that they then you know they want to change the world but they don't think the way to do that or the way they want to do that is to run the country yeah and i think it is partly i'm sure it would be different from 30 40 years ago is that they probably noticed that if you do want to do that you have to start the sort of networking and the campaigning to get a seat quite early yeah of course you can sort of go off and do something else for 20 years and then but it's rarer and rarer it's a it, you know it really is a early career choice and you know, if you're not up for it at the age of 20, you've got a disadvantage. And when you, when you look at what's happened, I mean, it's one of those things where more has happened in British politics in the last five or six years yeah. than certainly the previous five, 10, 15 years. Do you think that as a... Is that because we have a slightly peculiar group of people who do choose to go into politics? Is there a connection, do you think, between the quality or the type of people who go into politics and the number of slightly peculiar political events we've had? I mean, it is narrower, and part of the reason that we've had these peculiar political events is there is a real disenchantment with the quote-unquote political class, and these things feed off each other. As the politicians seem like a narrower and slightly weirder breed, a bit less like us, there's a reaction against that, and then that produces a particular kind of politics. And it's not just just in Britain. Like I was mentioning France. France, We think we've had a weird politics, but our two main parties are still the two main parties. Yeah. And neither of them has been taken over. I mean, Corbyn sort of took over the Labour Party, but he was a Labour politician. Yeah. It's not like Trump coming in and just... And he didn't win. And he he didn't win. And you look at France, the the French equivalent of the Labour Party, I think she's polling at 2%. Yeah, like the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's off the charts for us. If you you alone could decide how to make politics better, what would you... So I used to think that I had this scheme. It sounds complicated, but I'll I'll give it to you anyway. Yeah. Which is, you know, people sometimes say you should have a none-of-the-above box so in a, in a first past the post constituency based yeah. system what if you had a none of the above box so one question would be would none of the above win you know if people were given yeah. the option and then if the rule was if you tick none of the above we'll put all of your ballots in a big box and we'll pull one of them out at random and you will be the mp so to vote none of the above gives you a small but not completely negligible chance <laughs> that you would be the candidate <laughs> I mean, you'd be the member of parliament, you know, because yeah. it's that old-fashioned yeah, 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 democratic yeah. thing of one way you can do it is just pick people. At yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I just think it's not going to happen. What would be interesting about that is over time to see whether people, you know, people would then have a choice between the amateurs and the professionals. Yeah, yeah. The sort of put your money where your mouth is. They're all a bunch of whatever. Yeah. Then it might be you. And I think that would be interesting. Not going to so happen. You, you, but be, that would be my magic wand. You'd be wand. legally compelled then to be the MP for a five-year term. You for a five-year term, if you voted none of the above. Yeah. Not, if you didn't want to do that, you could either not vote, you could yeah. vote for one of the professionals. And I suspect first time round, none of the above would win quite a lot of constituencies. Yeah. And then there would be a very interesting There's selection of people. wild House of Commons. It would be a wild House of Commons, but time. it would be like ancient democracy, where the people were picked at random to be and the And actually, MPs. where we've seen some of those sort of like local campaigners who've stood on a single issue and you know they ended up sitting as independents and they've done quite well and they've yeah but the alternative if you've got a really wild house of commons the next election people might think actually you know none of the above it's not such a great idea can we have one of those nice weird professionals who do it for a living who've been carefully vetted yeah um uh, let's talk about your your new book 
confronting Leviathan. It's sort of examining the role of the state in our lives. And actually, if there's one thing, on top of everything else that we've really discovered in the past two years, is we've all had internal and external conversations about where we think the line is to how far the state should get involved in our lives. Yeah, and it was inspired by, it came out of some podcasts they did at the start of first lockdown, where, you know, after this period of really tumultuous politics, but it was that familiar, it was what we usually mean by politics, left versus right, Corbyn versus whoever, Brexit versus the alternative, you know, questions about money and who we want to be ruled by, but not the basic question of politics, the one that goes back pre-democracy. So I start with Thomas Hobbes, you kind of took it down to its absolute basics. It's a life and death issue. And what you get in a modern state is you've franchised out life and death decisions to a deciding body, which we call a government. And they will decide both often who lives and who dies, but also things like whether you can leave your home. And in my lifetime, that politics had never just kind of whooshed back to the surface. And the other politics got suspended. So in that first lockdown, there wasn't really party competition. Yeah. You know, it wasn't about tax and spend and budgets and all well, that. Because also the, the, the bizarre thing, that the, when the first lockdown happened, the Labour Party didn't even have a leader. They were no. in a, he was sort of named in, the, in, a, in a hostage video in his own you know, bedroom. Yeah, exactly. So even allowing for the cross-party united yeah. consensus and all of that, yeah. actually there was no vehicle. Oh, and even for... Biden campaigned from his yeah. basement. And yet this raw politics, that in a way, would be recognisable yeah. to someone from the 17th century. Yeah. And we thought we'd left it behind. So I wanted to tell the story of that politics, partly because I just thought you know, there's a deeper history than people yeah. realise. But also back then I wasn't sure, and I'm still not totally sure, the extent to which the pandemic might have really shifted things. I thought someone else, not me, came up with this great phrase, which is long political COVID. So there was short political yeah. COVID, which was lockdowns and all of that. But probably like with the financial crisis, two years after the financial crisis, politics looked normal. Yeah. Five, seven, ten years, it looked absolutely bonkers. Yeah. Because these things kind of feed through the body politic. And I don't think you can go through the two years we've gone through around the world and for it not five years' time, we'll go, oh, my God, that yeah. is the long-term effect of COVID on, on politics. And it's interesting because there's the sort of the people of, you know, people are very noisy on social media and so on are very cross about lockdowns and they yeah. hate it and all that. And it's, it's weird where the intersection between are they philosophically opposed? I mean, nobody liked them. No. <laughs> Just because you really disliked something doesn't mean it was wrong. You know, in trying to separate the right thing, you know, individuals versus society, right and wrong, you disliking something a lot doesn't mean that it was the wrong thing to do in a way that we just don't normally have those conversations in politics. No, and there was a significant group of people, but a minority, when confronted with the brute fact that these decisions are taken not by us just refused it in a kind of anarchic way and said we just do not accept that the state has the authority to do this but they turned out to be a small minority and polling throughout the pandemic has shown not only are most people comfortable with the government deciding that but often want the government to go further Um, and that was a slight shock to me I have to say. And so what happens now if we were sitting here if you started another podcast uh, just to give Putin something to listen to and we came back in six years time what do you think politics is going to look like then? So when we were winding it down and we thought, well, we, we, we can't be Corbyn, Brexit, Trump, because Corbyn's gone, Trump's gone, and then Brexit's over. So we need a new tagline. So the tagline that I came up with was Cummings, COVID, climate. I thought those were the sort of three things that were going yeah. to shape our... Cummings, I still think, you know, is, is there in the background. COVID, for sure, is going to have these long effects. And then I still think climate is the big thing that's going to shape our politics over the next 5, 10, 20 30 years so I think if we come back in six years I think it is a bit like the financial crisis yeah how different politics looked five to ten years out 
from one to two years out. And you can't really see the roots of what's coming now. We're too in the middle of it. But the economic consequences of the pandemic, the liberty and libertarian consequences of the pandemic, cutting across an old-fashioned 1930s war with the risk of nuclear weapons in the background, it's going to destabilise our expectations. So I don't think she's going to win, right? I know I've been harping on this, but I've just been thinking about what will people think about the last two years of politics if Marine Le Pen winds up as president of France? It'll be the first of those events where suddenly people think it hasn't settled down at all. I've read lots of articles, I'm sure you have, saying populism is over, people want competence. They've realised in a pandemic, actually, the experts count all of that. And there's been a certain amount of that. Bolsonaro's time has gone, Trump's time may have gone. But what if in six years' time, five years' time, we come back, Marine Le Pen is president, Donald Trump is president again. You know, it's sort of China's taken Taiwan. Then the pandemic will look like this frozen period where we kidded ourselves that the craziness before had been sort of sorted by a real kick up the backside and we all woke up to the yeah, stakes. Yeah. Just because you mentioned Dominic Cummings, I read a piece that you wrote where you described him, where you said one of the best, most thoughtful writers on politics today is Dominic Cummings and one of the most long-winded and tedious writers on politics today is Dominic Cummings. You sort of, you've been reading his emails, uh-huh. his substack, so so the rest of us didn't have to. What do you make of him as a political is he a genius is he just now just a mad person sitting in his bedroom in his pants battling away on the internet i mean i think he is fascinating i always have you know it is both those things right it is occasionally exhilarating i mean really exhilarating he's very knowledgeable he has really weird eclectic interests he goes into those dark places on the web that we don't so he reads stuff for us just as i was reading him for you (laughs) Uh, and a lot of it's fascinating he's quite dark he has been really interesting over the last month on nuclear weapons it's one of his things and i would recommend to anyone read his blog and it won't cheer you up but he takes it really seriously and there's a terrifying description that he has of arranging a briefing for johnson when he was in number 10 saying look you know you know the most your most important job is to understand nuclear strategy because otherwise the world ends kind of thing and so he persuades Johnson to have a three-hour briefing, forces him to leave his phone outside the room so he can't WhatsApp and you know, look at stuff during it. So he has to concentrate for three hours. Johnson comes out and, according to Cummings, says, never effing waste my time like that again. Now give me my phone back. And you think, whoa. So he's fascinated, but he's also obsessive. You know, I never want to read... So I'm, I'm happy to read him on Boris. I never want to read him on Kerry ever again. <laughs> it's just so boring, so mean... He's a real mix. He is fascinating and boring, but it's not a waste of time to read what he has yeah. to say. Even that, even that's mad. Yeah, the, the, that he mad. was there and is now able to re- willingly open up about how mad it was. Finally, then we're here. We are at University of Cambridge. If you could get anyone from the current Westminster Village to come and speak to your students, who would you most want to hear from? So he used to say for the podcast, the person I most want to get on with J.K. Rowling. But if we invited her here, the students wouldn't come, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, the most interesting speaker I ever heard here was Nigel Farage because uh, this was way back. It was just sort of, it was a revelation the way he constructed his, you know, his shtick. And even back then, the thing that struck me was he was drawing a connection between three things. The politicians were all useless posh boys who don't know the price of a pint of milk. We should use, leave the European Union and climate change is a kind of con. And it's the same pack. You know, he's, he's, the same his thing. comeback he's is, is, is net zero yeah. now. So I would like to sort of... The trouble is the people that I would love to come and talk to the students are not the people that the students want to listen to. But that's why to. they probably should listen. That's why, probably why they should. But because um, if you're studying politics, studying Nigel Farage as a political oh, phenomenon is interesting, even if you could disagree with all of his policy. Uh, 
But then I say that someone the other day was saying, you know, that the Jordan Peterson, when he was here, yeah. was cancelled and sort of sent packing. But he came back under the radar and he gave a talk. And someone said, I've just seen a sort of queue of 700 students. Who is it? It must be, it's either Russell Brand or yeah, it's, yeah. no, it was it's Jordan, Jordan Peterson. Peterson. The, the most interesting people are often the ones who are hardest to hear. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose more, more so than, you know, you haven't said Keir Starmer or Boris Johnson. No. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from?